Hey, Mr. Binks, you know how we were chatting to Carol Hughes about the microbiome last week. Well, I'm delighted to say she's back for a much deeper investigation on how specific bacteria are almost missing these days from a dog's microbiome and why this really is potentially very serious. I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Carol Hughes, welcome back to A Dog's Life. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Thank you. I was so excited in our first conversation that we had. So I'm really pleased that you're back. So I felt that there was so much more to talk about, not least really your own journey to get to being so interested in the microbiome. Yeah. Um, do you know, it, I was thinking about it because I knew we were going to be talking about this particular subject. And it's one of those things that partly happened by accident and also partly happened because um, of the environment, of, of our interest in the environment, and how we kind of develop a circular economy, which seems very far removed from uh, dogs, horses, health, the microbiome, but it's actually quite entwined. And we actually started um, from researching plant compounds, active plant compounds with health benefits that could be extracted from a native plant species that we could use as a type of medicine. And there was a, there's a huge um, interest in that in Wales um, and it was it was quite well funded by the Welsh government so it was a very vibrant uh, community and a very exciting one to be part of and if I can just give you an example of, of what we were doing at the time that led us onto the microbiome um, we, we actually researched um, a steroid compound from spinach and it also comes from uh, is it quinoa quinoa whatever however you want to say it um, yes, I know. <laughs> you know what I mean, but the, I know the, it, it, it is quinoa, isn't it? Although for years quinoa. I called it quinona. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I've called it many things. Um, and the point of that was there's, that that's a food for people in a poor country, and it has such high value that it's easy to kind of take that away from those people, those indigenous people, and make a lot of money out of it because it's a health product. So it was our job not to take the quinoa, even though that had high levels of this steroid we were after, but find some kind of um, hardier, more uh, wild plant or a part of the, a plant that was being farmed that was waste um, to be able to extract this compound out of it. So we, we actually looked at spinach and spinach seeds have a high level of this steroid. So we were kind of taking the seeds from a manufacturer that didn't have a use for them and the root. We were extracting the plant compound and then we were making, stabilizing it and putting it into animals. Um, and the, the purpose of the compound was to lose weight, was weight loss. So it was attractive in that it was an anti-obesity compound. And that's what got us into dogs. Initially, it was trying to work out whether the compound passed over the gut barrier and that was all the big deal in those days it was well well will this thing work will it go into the blood will it do whatever it needs to do um, but first of all it's got to get over the gut wall so for that you had to take blood tests and you also had to put dogs in cages 
Um, and at the second stage of the test, the taking of blood from dogs and putting them in cages was actually really not, not on for us at all. So we kind of went, well, that's that then. That's the end of the road for this uh, weight loss compound that we'd already trialled live in vet practices and with um, uh, uh, pet food manufacturers, and it was going really well. But at the point we had to put dogs in cages, that was it. And then um, we were introduced to Professor Newbold, and he said, well, you don't have to worry about it going over the gut wall. What we have to talk about is what effect does it have on the microbiome? Because that's where everything happens first. Um, and I was a bit disappointed, to be honest. Um, and I didn't really understand any of it anyway. But it was free. The Welsh Government were funding it. So for four years, we've started off uh, looking at the microbiome. And gradually, because my knowledge increased and the technology got better, um, I was absolutely fascinated to discover that that was actually the truth, where food from the outside meets the inside. It all happens in the gut first. So that's the start point. And it's such a powerful start point. Um, you know, we just began to learn more from that, how it affected so many different things. And that was that was us. We were off on that journey from the microbiome first. Wow. So in a way, would you call yourself a herbalist as well? You know, I mean, uh, you know, or not? Oh, have I, you know, in terms no, of your, I, the phyto I, aspect? I think the herbalist side, I think, I think it's fascinating. Plants fascinate me. And I think for sure plants and the microbiome and the soil go together better than any drug or, or anything else. Um, that the effect is massive on the microbiome. But I'm wondering, with herbalism, you you don't kind of target into specific how specific compounds help in a particular area. You're more involved in the whole plant. I think that's fantastic because the whole plant is great. Mm. But mm. It, the plant does contain specific antimicrobials. So the more you learn about that antimicrobial in, in a herb, and how that will affect those bacteria in the gut, then you've got a chance of just rebalancing the gut before the rest of the plant goes on to do whatever it needs to do elsewhere. Um, and because the microbiome is under such pressure and such attack and the changes are so massive, that um, I think you've got to start there for sure. Yeah, I mean this this compound in spinach. I mean, it is fascinating. I mean, we everyone knows spinach makes you strong, according Popeye. to Popeye. <laughs> it's a great leafy green, you know. As a nutritionist, I've pulverized spinach over the years, loads, um, and the science does concur. It is a very strong polyphenol that can keep cancer at bay and really enrich the cells and balance a lot of toxins in the body. But you see what you. What you're saying there, you see, I'm so fascinated. So finding a compound that would act like a steroid, but a natural steroid, I didn't even know you yeah. could get natural steroids. I've always, yeah. yeah, I thought steroids are pharmaceuticals, one of the very few tools in a conventional vet's toolbox that often do more harm than good, you know. So yeah. to even know that there is this natural steroid is uh, blowing my mind, but I suppose the way it fuses in with the microbiome is to see how this particular compound, am I right, is perhaps creating a set of bacteria in the biome or altering 
other bacterias in in the microbiome to perform more efficiently in terms of the achieved goal being weight loss? Yeah, for sure. I I think it triggers a pathway called the AKT pathway. It's an energy pathway. Um, And you have to extract the compound. I I am a massive fan of the whole plant, but specifically for manipulating the biome, it's it's useful to be able to extract it. So the steroid is called a 22-ectisterone 2-acetate, and it does trigger a particular pathway. So scientists have looked at that pathway because there is an interest in making drugs from plants, except they do tend to fall apart at the point where um, they need to synthesize the, the compound to make money at it. They seem to fall down at that place. So the journey of the, the plant compound is one of discovery from science, but at the point before it can make it onto the market, it's difficult to patent and difficult to synthesize. But um, as part of that, we've learned a lot on the journey. So we tend to, to use the compound at 98% pure, and in a wild plant, it's maybe only at 2.5, uh, sorry, 0.5% um, for wild spinach and maybe at 2% in, um, you know, other plants like quinoa. Um, so it, being able to get it 98% pure is great. Um, and we can use it at that level to make a difference to the microbiome. It's also quite interesting because it will tell you um, if what you've got going on in your own microbiome if you've had a really, um, if, you, if you're into, say, Greg's, I, I don't mean to be, but processed food, high carbs, high processed food, the, the plant compound actually tastes bitter at, to the point that you may, uh, it, it may make you vomit. It's so powerful. But if you have a kind of diet that's quite high in plants, a good diet, good, um, you know, a, a sort of diverse diet, it actually tastes like caramel. So isn't that interesting? And what it does, it's part of the quorum sensing part of the microbiome. So it's talking, the actual plant compound, it's actually a, um, an insect molting hormone. So it's telling the body to do something and it works through the adipose tissue of which um, animals have, obviously adipose tissue. So it's talking to the adipose tissue um, and it does have such an instant effect on the body um and it's a great test you know if you you taste it and it tastes like caramel well you're doing really well <laughs> gosh i mean this is <laughs> so do you sell this um carol <laughs> uh yeah yeah we do um we do yes we do we've been researching it since 2014 we started in um race horses because um if trainers gave uh sort of steroids synthetic steroids, if, if that's the way I can put it, it does affect, um, make a big difference. There are lots of side effects, but mm. a natural plant compound, there aren't. So we still, and, and also you don't fail a dope test of taking a natural plant. So that's where we started. And then we went on to do weight loss studies in dogs and horses. Um, so yes, we do sell it, but it's it's not really that that interests us. Um, no, no, no. 
I just I just find this so interesting in terms of perhaps the future as well of the vet profession that plant compound could be used in lieu of, you know, as you say, a, a processed steroid. But it's so interesting. So now I totally get a much clearer picture of of how you ended up there with all of this great knowledge of the of the microbiome, because you you said in the last episode and I was presented with microbiomes and there was such a clear picture and a clear structure of the microbiome. That interests me as well, because obviously when you get really focused into anything, you know, it becomes your thing. It's interesting how you're describing it, that you can really look at a microbiome using your technology that you do in the laboratory and you see a picture you know, the information mm. is I'm sure you can tell the dog's age you know you mentioned in the last episode you can tell from the biome if the dog's been neutered or not you can tell yeah. from the biome the diet the dog's been eating and I'm sure you could tell from the biome certain allergens that are maybe in the dog or yeah. tell me more tell me more <laughs> um well, I think, I think when you look at the microbiome of a dog, we do look at other animals, but the dog, I guess, out of all the animals, interests me the most because it does seem to be more vulnerable to change um, from environmental changes or changes from uh, its owner. I know we'll, we'll talk about that at some point, um, or from medicines. So when you look at the microbiome, I always tend to imagine it being a city um, and I, I can't imagine, I suppose, somewhere like Singapore, a, bit, a, a big sort of fairly glamorous city with, with kind of lots of lovely buildings and um, lots going on, a very busy city. And while you're looking at it that way, you understand that there has to be an infrastructure um, and the infrastructure may not be the dominant part of the biome. It, it may be under 3% of the biome, but in that under 3%, you're going to have some very clever bacteria, I guess, for one to a way of saying it, um, that, that can talk that, to the host and that can make a lot of difference through different, like the gut-brain axis. And then the sort of bigger parts of the biome, you need them to contain bacteria that digest food, different components of the food. Um, and then you need part of the biome that will digest protein, and things that will say digest bone. So in the dog, I think it's probably very clear um, that you need all these different aspects. So when something is out of sync, say you've got high levels of um, antibiotic resistant bacteria, it kind of stands out like a sore thumb because you look at it and you've just got great gaps in this infrastructure and this, this kind of parts of the city, um, they don't exist. So it, it really does stand out um, and it makes it easier to look at, uh, but also I don't, it, it's quite hard to look at it because you understand, you can understand quite quickly why the dog might have problems um, and the problems are multiple. You know, I think the dog probably has more problems than any other animal we look at. That's very sad, isn't it? Very yeah, sad, very sad. Also, I mean... Gosh, so 
you know, because, you know, it's, I mean, everybody's spays and neuters. And it's interesting how in Norway, it's actually illegal to spay and neuter. So, you know, which puts quite a different perspective on everything, really, you know, you know, I know you mentioned that your plumeteria is entire. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and my brood, my prudence, my bull terrier is entire as well. She's actually in season at the moment. It's not the easiest three weeks of the year. I've, no, I've not, no, it but, isn't. I know, you know, no, you're right. <laughs> not with prudence. I mean, with other other girl dogs, it's not a big deal, you know. But I mean, she's always a problem, no matter what. You know, she's got a very strong personality, so it's all magnified. You know, it's all relative, as they say. So anyway, it's interesting because there's. A lot of research was shared at the London Vet Show, actually, amongst the vet community about yeah. the dangers of spaying and neutering just at the last London Vet Show, actually. Oh, um, great, great. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't think it was awfully well received. Um, oh, no, really? Well, I don't know. And, I, you know, it stirred things up a bit, I think, to be honest with you, arguably raising questions as to why vets are so keen to spay and neuter, you know, because it's not covered by an owner's insurance. So, you know, there's it, it, it's quite a big conversation there. You know, spaying and neutering, let's face it, what, the, what this research proves and what you're suggesting also, Carol, with the biome is that spaying and neutering certainly doesn't do anything to help the dog's health. No. So, you know, you have to ask yourself then why is it almost like almost mandatory and I do have people ask me is it mandatory you know because vets are so keen to do it so you know this is why I think your findings with the microbiome could really augment the studies that have been done in America and and proved really quite scary figures on the amount of dogs that die of cancer that are spayed and neutered that that I've talked about you know actually with Dr. Lise Hansen on this podcast um a few times because she's Danish so she gets it that in Denmark Sweden and Norway most dogs are not spayed and neutered compared to how they are here and in America you know so yeah yeah Mm. I know absolutely well in Norway it's illegal you know a vet won't do it unless there's yeah it's actually true yeah brilliant yeah I know What, what interests me is this you've got a huge amount of research here knowledge um, of the biome how would you like to share this and how do you think vets would like to learn about it um oh gosh uh well it's got a name it's called a microgenderome the link between the sex hormones receptors in the gut and the brain and I, i think One of the big things, it depends how important you think bifidobacteria are, um, because I I think that's the core to this, uh, the spaying changes uh, or creates a dysbiosis in the gut. And uh, it changes, it reduces the good gut bacteria um, for sure. And what's interesting about the dog, one of the good gut bacteria called bifidobacteria, which is a good gut bacteria in anybody's book, human, elephant, fish, any, anything. And in the dog, it reduces bifidobacteria to the point that some researchers are suggesting that the dog doesn't need bifidobacteria. Now, that's quite worrying to me because bifidobacteria is, is the prime conversation that the gut has with the immune system 
Um, and by spaying or neutering, you're reducing them to sometimes 0.01%. I mean, that's what, in some dogs, that's what they have. They have nothing. Um, it doesn't seem to help giving them probiotic bits of bifidobacteria because the species, or not enough, and also maybe what's the point? If you didn't spay them, they'd have their own levels and those levels would be um, natural to the, to the microbiome. So what they should have, if you look at uh, what wolves and unspayed animals or unneutered animals, it's around 2%. So if you've gone from 2% to 0 0.01% or 0.02%, that, that's such a loss. So you're already compromising the immune system and leaving the dog open to some diseases that it would be able to deal with if you didn't say them. Wow. Well, I think that for me is um, enough, really. Uh, you know, bifidobacteria are massive in anyone's book. And to, to have an animal with none, you know, just in such low levels, uh, why, you know, it's obviously going to make a big difference to the health of the animal. This is so interesting. So why would supplementing with the bifido not work? I wish I knew because I'd love to be able to say you need to give that. And, and in fact, to start with, we did say that, but it didn't make any difference. So I'm presuming there's something we don't understand about how the communication, the signals set up. Um, and that if you if they are spayed or neutered and you've changed, you've dysregulated um, the luteinizing hormone and the receptors in the gut, maybe it's too late. Maybe you just can't change that dynamic, um, which is quite sad, really. But we, we haven't very successfully. Sometimes we can change it a little bit, but um, definitely the difference between dogs that are neutered or spayed and those that are entire is, is quite large. Gosh, it's, significant. it's significant. Yeah, absolutely. It is interesting, actually. So interesting. Okay, more questions, Carol. Gosh, mm. that leaves people really spinning, I think. It's left me um, a bit not sideways, actually, on that, on that front. How scary. You're really removing. But that's the whole thing about the spaying. You, you are removing yeah. not something that's just, you know, for reproduction, but a whole real active chunk of yeah. your dog's being essence uh, metabolism yeah. and that's always just been sort of postulated but this gives it more evidence you know so this is really interesting so similarly you know with the biome when you're looking at it can you can you tell if a dog has had a lot of particular medication for example because yeah. obviously antibiotics we all know even in humans that you're you know your your microbiome is affected, and you're all, you're always recommended to take probiotics to balance the antibiotics. But yeah. is that going to work with the dog? No, no. I um, do you know we we've done a lot of longitudinal studies, and we've done it with horses. Now, for some reason, horses recover maybe within sometimes nine days. Um, they'll recover their microbiome. Not massively, but enough to get by. But for some reason, dogs don't seem to respond that way. That way. They seem to have um, just large chunks of the biome go permanently missing, um, particularly the proteobacteria, so the bacteria that, that digest protein. 
um, and also that house the the bad boys, the true pathogens that I actually quite like because <laughs> we all like a bad boy. <laughs> yes, we do. We do. I'm quite fond of um, proteobacteria, but I, I know uh, a lot of people may not be. Um, but it, it it gets rid of all of those, and 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 the, the microbiome just looks completely imbalanced. But it reminds me of what happened during COVID. And taking antibiotics is is very much like when we we notice the difference in the microbiome during the COVID lockdown. Uh, or I don't know whether dogs got COVID. We never really, um, you know, kind of pursued it to. We couldn't find an answer at the time because we're, we're limited resource wise. But at least we noticed it changed and we can keep working on it and see see what it's all about. But there was a a point during that COVID lockdown where the microbiome completely changed and it changed so much that our rules-based report writing didn't work anymore. Um, it just didn't, there were so few good gut bacteria and huge chunks of these kind of antibiotic resistant and um, inflammatory bacteria that the reports no longer made sense. Uh, since then, so we had to write a kind of special bit of the report and say, look, we think this is associated. We've been doing this for a long time and this is a massive change across the board. And we think it's maybe caused by this, this and this. And then we just had to keep our fingers crossed to see whether it would recover. And it has maybe 30% of dogs have recovered, but we're still seeing that kind of empty microbiome uh, that happened you know, during that first lockdown. Gosh, because I know you wrote a piece for Vet Times yeah. about a particular strain of bacteria that you found at the time, you know, of the first lockdown, which was a bacteria that was linked in humans to COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. So was it that one you're referring to? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. no, but uh, for sure. And I think we were looking at stuff that was coming out of China of, of people that were in the hospital with COVID um, and the ones that were recovering that, that were very seriously ill but recovering had this profile of the microbiome that was the similar to very similar to the ones that were coming out of the dogs but to this day i'm really just not sure why and i guess um to me i i'm, I'm sort of feeling it may be because we've used antimicrobials maybe hand sanitizers um or maybe people haven't mixed and the microbiome has got weaker, but I don't know for sure. It could be a protective mechanism by the biome um, for a particular reason. And we just don't know enough about it at the moment to, to take the call. Um, but it certainly reduces diversity. So I can't think that it's a good happening. Um, you know, I'm leaning more towards the fact that uh, the biome was emptied because of uh, antimicrobial use of some kind and it hasn't recovered yet, which is a bit similar to them taking antibiotics. It looks a bit similar. Wow, even if the dogs hadn't taken antibiotics. No, no. I think at the time when, when we were sort of saying to people, well, look, it looks like you've had an antibiotics. And I think a lot of people were quite cross, um, really. And I, I, I kind of get it. I, but, we, you know, we just have to report what's happening. We can't, um, mm. you know, when you're when you're at the forefront of discovery, you just have to be straight and tell you have to go with what's the information that's coming in 
um, that may not be where you end up, but it's the start of the journey and, uh, you know, you have to report the facts, really. Yeah, I mean, I guess that that is what you're doing by looking at this and it's almost that you are looking at the truth. Yes, yeah. And then you have to work backwards to work out, you know, or maybe this could be related perhaps to a general anaesthetic the dog had yeah. five years ago. I mean, could that be possible? Yeah, yeah. I think I think there are so many assaults. The, the, the horse seems to bounce back. I mean, that's the other animal we do a lot of and ruminants. Mm. seem to bounce back but dogs don't um quite so well and I I wish I could just put that over to people that you know when you get your dog you've you've got a crisis start you know you have a cry an internal crisis already there um and I I wish people could just understand that invisible part of the microbiome and the link to the environment because it's something if you can't actually see it with your eyes Maybe it's too hard to take in, um, but it's the whole, the thing that controls the health of the dog, isn't it? You know, it's the most important part. Yes, gosh, gosh, gosh. So have you ever compared puppies' microbiomes, you know, from perhaps puppies that yeah. were weaned to raw food and puppies that were weaned to, you know, kibble, for example? We've done, um, we haven't done to kibble, we've done raw and we've done puppies and they are have much higher levels when they're in the early days of bifidobacteria so that kind of backs up um the the, the feeling that the bifidobacteria are important at some point and then they go missing at some other point later on in life there is that clear distinction and i think that that when you're eating um raw not only are you feeding bifidobacteria, but you're also feeding uh, kind of mucin and blood digesting bacteria, which are really strong components of the immune system. Um, and that's quite clear as well, as, as well as the fecal bacteria, which protect the gut um, from and protect the gut wall integrity. You're also feeding them when you feed raw as a puppy. Yes, and, and we, we touched on a faecal Im implant or transplants yeah. um, in the last episode, which is quite a new way of kind of bringing a dog back to life when everything else has failed. But something that's interested me, you know how some dogs eat their own poo? Yeah. Do you, do you think, um, um, you know, nobody really gets why. I mean, it's the old instinct to cover their tracks you know eat fox poo so yeah. that uh you know the fox isn't going to find them but yeah. could it be to enhance their microbiome yeah yeah absolutely um I'm a big um a big fan of I think that's my favorite probiotic is uh that's just terrible isn't it to think of it like that um I, no. I think they do do it for that reason and it, it, because the microbiome is talking to the brain and it's also causing uh, the body to sense what it needs. And I wonder why we don't actually trust that, um, you know, to, uh, as one of the sensors, if you like. I mean, I get, get so many people that say, well, my dog's allergic to chicken or it's allergic to this or it's allergic to that. It's, it's because the microbiome can't digest what it, what, it, what it needs. It hasn't got the bacteria in there to be able to digest particular types of food. So if it can get it from another animal or another source, it kind of makes sense that they would do that. Um, to me, uh, soil as well, you know, if they're digging a, 
up a bone and burying it, they're going to get a lot from soil, but only if it's healthy soil, if it's sprayed with um, pesticide or, uh, you know, any other agrochemicals, you just, you're not going to get the microbiome from there either. So I guess they're on the hunt for a microbiome that they can borrow from someone else, to me. Yes, yeah, yeah. And of course, everything really comes from the soil, all the food we eat, and actually the food dogs eat, because, you know, cows, ruminants need to eat grass. And, you know, you should only feed your dog a ruminant, really, if you can, that has eaten grass. Um, yeah, not for processed, sure. For sure, you know, for sure. So that's why, you know, not all raw diets are the same, you know, Carol, which you all know. No, you, no. no. So it's really important to research the supplier, you know, to yeah. make sure that those animals have lived a happy life, haven't been injected with tons of antibiotics because we'll absorb those and so yeah. will your dog. And then, of course, all of those factors. Yeah, yes, you're right. I mean, it is it is the environment, really, you know, because unwittingly we could be putting antibiotics into our bodies and that will be affecting acidophilus bacteria in there without even taking any antibiotics as such. Yeah, no, for sure. I think um, I think that's what interests me. Going back to the the antimicrobials out of plants, um, they're so effective without killing off everything else in the biome. I think they've just been really under. We should look at them far more seriously and see them as as a far more medicinal kind of um, part of the diet than we do. I think we're rather kind of we tread a little bit carefully in there, don't we? Because they're plants and they're not medicine, but um, they're just so full of stuff for the biome. Um, I think we should resort, you know, go back to that, really. Well, I'm a great fan, you know, of herbs. And I, I also use homeopathy a lot and seen that work, you know. So I do believe the power of herbs can be perhaps stronger than pharmaceuticals, to be honest yeah. with you. But of course, yes, we're talking specifically about a compound, but it's an awareness of, of all the, the compounds in, in all of these plants. I think, yeah. you know, we do need to go back to, you know, ancient times, really, because... yeah. Back then, yeah. people seemed, you know, that's where old remedies come from. That's where I think, you know, herbs are still used today. I mean, for example, I've started to take a herb called Boswellia, actually. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I love Boswellia. Yeah, yeah, yeah do you? Gosh, interesting. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, it, and it's got many, many benefits. One of them is, you know, for joints and cartilage. But it's, it's said to be cancer deterring as well and a great you know antioxidant and that's an old you know Ayurvedic herb but without India using these herbs for centuries and documenting them we wouldn't know I don't really know if we've got any great indigenous herbs of the UK have we Carol yeah. well, I'm yeah. sure we have haven't we we must have rose hip perhaps it's... yeah um well I, I think um ivy actually ivy berries are really strong. I, I, do you know the plants that come on the poisonous list? The wild plants that come on the poisonous list are the most contain the most potent chemicals, and you only need small amounts. Um, I don't. It, it isn't my job to be able to say to people this is what you need to do because uh, I think that's outside my remit. But for my own dogs, I would always pick something. Um, you, well, like ivy, we've done quite a lot of research on um, ivy berries. And as long as the doses are very minute, they do act to reduce pathogens 
very rapidly. And in fact, it was an old Roman, I think they used to use it for um, gastric disease, but also hangovers. So it, it, is, it isn't as poisonous maybe as we think it is, um, but it's just in moderation. And I think also there was the thing with herbs where they took off all the kind of strong herbs from a, if you were training to be a herbalist, I, I'm sure you'll put me right for it if I'm if I'm not reporting this as is. But I think some herbs were taken off because they were quite potent. Would that be right off a list safety list? They might. I'm not a herbalist. I've just learned about a lot of the properties of different herbs that can be yeah. used. You know, for for different conditions. Belladonna, for example, terribly yeah. toxic. Fantastic yeah. to cure fevers, and I've exactly. cured kennel cough um actually homeopathically with belladonna and again it's working on that like to like philosophy that of course hippocrates you know championed all those years ago along with let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food <laughs> so and that kind of takes us back to the microbiome i'm so fascinated i'm carol what i mean you've got these amazing kits that look really easy to use, but that's me talking. I do my own, you know, I send off stool samples and have worm count tests done, you know, so I'm already quite happy to put on the rubber gloves and yeah. put bits of everything into certain little vials and, and what have you and send them back. So that's something I would really, really love to do, actually, Carol, because yeah, both Mr. Binks and Prudence, I've got their own set of problems, you know, and it'd be really interesting to Prudence, mainly her only problem is she had an enormous anaesthetic <laughs> that, you know, has left her very different, actually, to how she was before the anaesthetic brain wise. I think a few brain cells were fried. If she was under for about six hours, oh, she had wow. a huge yeah, she was cut in half. She had a huge pyothorax. She had a hole in her throat and she survived. And, you know, she is happy and bouncy and all the rest of it. But there something has changed in her following that surgery, without doubt. And it's a shame. And I've, I've, I've you know, it was, um, how long ago was it now? Four years this October. You know, I've wrangled with myself. Should I have done it or should I have done the other? But I couldn't bring myself to you know, kill her. So basically put her to sleep. So I was like, look, just save her life, save her life. So she swallowed part of a plastic fork, you see, in lockdown. Oh, and got wow. stuck in. Yeah. So, but that's the only thing she's really had. So, but that I knew at the time would have annihilated her. Uh, immune system basically her microbiome so it'd be interesting to see what her biome tells us from such an onslaught but and Mr Binks has a degenerative bone condition yeah I just want to also and he's been neutered and you know maybe see if the biome reflects yeah. leg calves for Perth's disease in yeah. in his biome because if it does then the biomes could be tested yeah before yeah. somebody bred from their dog. Do you know what I mean? I mean, maybe yeah. there's so much more power for the biome tests, even to work out, you know, degenerative conditions that a dog oh, no, might for have. Sure. Yeah, really. for sure. Definitely. Um, it, it would definitely be good for that. I, I think um, if people could just grasp the bit, the crisis that the biome is in at the moment, and then look underneath to where that if they don't resolve that crisis, what what might happen next? Um, I think that would be the most powerful 
tool, analytical tool that, that we have to keep maintain the health of the dog for sure. Absolutely. And I mean, I guess, you know, the yeah, yeah, to, you know, curb processed foods, you know, be aware yes. of the environment. So there's so many stressors in an indoor environment and dogs spend most of their time indoors, unlike outdoor cats that might spend more time outdoors, you know, and maybe that's why cats are healthier, generally speaking, in the biome than dogs, Carol. Yeah, no, agreed. And I, and I think we, we were doing also some work on volatile organic compounds. And even the power of taking a dog for a walk in the wood in the autumn, um, I mean, that sounds sort of like, well, yeah, we, we all quite like to do that. But it increases the health by such a, a good percentage that, um, you know, if you, you have got a microbiome that's full of bacteria that's maybe antimicrobial resistant, even doing that, it's just such a powerful thing to do for the microbiome and, um, you know, snuffling about in leaves that are full of these volatile organic compounds plus bacteria that that will help restore the biome, um, you know, is a great thing to do. But I don't think we think about it like that, do we? I don't think, uh, I mean, not that I want everybody to go, oh, well, I've got to just walk my dog for a medicinal walk. Um you know, you enjoy doing the walk yourself, don't you? But understand why it might be benefiting and what type of environment will give you something more than another type of environment, let's say. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think it is very important to let dogs be in a, an environment that a dog likes to be in, which yeah. for me, it's common sense. You know, I mean, in London, it's the Hackney Marshes, it's Hampstead Heath, arguably also Regent's Park, but not so much, you see, because it's been too manicured, in my opinion. You want, you know, the wild side of things, you know, um, uneven ground, you know, natural plants and different grasses and then the insects around them and all the rest of it, really. That's yeah. where dogs should run and play. But but lots of dogs don't do that, of course. But, Carol, you know, we could talk um, on and on about this. So in a nutshell... Your research and your offering to help analyze dogs and cats and I guess ferrets as well. Ooh, um, ooh. I'm, sh I'm sure some of um, my listeners also have horses. So yeah. you're able to analyze any animal microbiome and then report back with the results yeah. that are really factual and offer solutions to diet, lifestyle and the environment? Yeah. And I think what we do is start with a 30 page report, which is probably enough, really, for a lot of most people. But um, what we do after that is do a, a consultation. So whatever the problem is, um, people can call us and can tell us all about the lifestyle and we can just keep looking into the data and targeting it for that problem because the data is so massive, um, you know, and you could just overwhelm someone to start with. You d I don't want to give them a report that's completely overwhelming. So we're always here to talk people through and get them to the point where they're getting the information they really need. So interesting. No, Carol, look, thank you. I know that there's an, another podcast, you know, in this because... I'm just so interested. I've just got so many questions. Amazing. I mean, I'm really looking forward to seeing you up at the Natural yeah. Dog Expo, chatting some more, basically. Yeah. And in the meantime, I must get on it like a car bonnet with the 
<laughs> with the microbiome test. <laughs> yeah, no, brilliant. But I think I think really with with the test, what what I'm so enthused about it, it will it lasts because the information is so good. You can just keep working your way through it and drilling down into it. Um, the thing that we lack the most is the knowledge of what you do um, to restore the biome. Say so if you're looking at say the gut brain axis. We don't have enough information about that, but we can we know enough about plants. It will always be plants that we use because they are um, the, the most microbiome friendly. But that's what we lack. We lack the resources really to run at the same speed as the technology is going, um, which is a shame. But we do our best. <laughs> no, no, it's brilliant. One last question is this. So I suppose the the big question will be how vets and big pharma accept your your research isn't it really um i think in the human field we always tail the human field it's really valuable to as we um follow it very closely and the the bioinformatics software links at researchers around the world it's really forward thinking in humans i think in animals it, it's a bit disappointing that most of it is funded through feed companies so there's always a a kind of a leaning in a particular direction. Um, I'm not sure drug companies fund will fund that in dogs because I don't think it's a big enough market. Um, so I think the dogs will lag behind and that's a, a big shame. Vets are interested to a point. I think holistic vets are really interested. Other vets come and go. I think a lot of it is because they don't understand it. So we're, we're doing the kind of educational side as well. Um, I think I guess you can only just hope for the best, can't you, really? I don't know if the drivers are there in dogs. I don't I don't know. No, I know you can only hope for the best. And and this is using technology in a very new way for a very good cause. And I think understanding your dog better and, you know, really understanding the power of the microbiome through human research and then into dogs. I think, you know, in a way, I think it is the sky is the limit, I think. Yeah, I think it is. And I, I think somewhere I'd like I don't know how how you would do it, because there is a kind of human microbiome kind of a library uh, project. Um, and I'd quite like to do the same in dogs, but let it belong to the dog owner, the people somehow. So it's accessible all the time. So you, you're not going to sort of close it off and use it for your own advantage to develop a medicine or a. Um, you know say well this is the diet you must feed your dog because I think it's more important than that but I'm not really sure how that could be achieved um, but I just think it's so important it should be accessible for all. Yeah definitely I agree I agree I think you need to write a book Carol first of all and then I'd like to help you talk about it on the radio a lot. You've got this research that I think needs to be shared, particularly about the bifidobacteria that I've picked up on this conversation today. And I'm sure there's many other strains I hope to learn about as well by hopefully getting my dogs tested and get their results back. We'll open quite a lot of thought, I think, as well. So let's maybe that can be the next podcast, actually, Carol, discussing the results of Mr. Binks and Prudence's biomes. <laughs> yeah, no, brilliant. That would be brilliant, actually. I'd love that. That'd be really good. Well, thank you again for joining us today, Carol. And until the next time. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much. 
that's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think? Yes, it is a bit worrying about these proteo bacteria, the bad boys. But Carol says they can be good as well. And that's interesting. And you're right. It is time for Woof of the Week. <laughs> Thinking that living in a sterile environment, eating sterile food, clearly is a little bit illogical. <laughs> Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, go on, rate and review the show, please, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's easy and it makes a huge difference. Thanks again, of course, to Carol Hughes for joining us today. And all the links are in the show notes. Thanks, of course, to Mike Hansen for all the music and production as ever. And find out more about Mike at Pod People UK. Find out more about me at my website or at Anna Webb Dogs. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, you're right. We will be back in your feed next Sunday. So go on if you haven't already. It's free to subscribe. And it just means you'll never miss another show. Bye for now.